Hello, and welcome back to Atlantic Baptist Stories. This week, I'll be sharing with you a conversation I had with Bruce Martin. Bruce formerly served as associate pastor at First Baptist Truro and is currently the lead pastor at First Baptist Lethbridge in Alberta. Bruce shares anecdotes from his experience studying at Acadia Divinity College, completing a field placement at First Baptist Dartmouth, and then serving at First Baptist Truro in the 90s. He talks about some of the ways his time in the Atlantic Baptist world has influenced his perspective and his ministry to the present. I came to face, we were living in Vancouver, but I came to face in my mid-teens and started going to a Baptist church at that point. That was uh, what's now the Canadian Baptist of Western Canada. So I did my undergrad at UBC in Vancouver and then felt called to ministry. And so there were, in the Canadian Baptist world at that time, there were really three options. There was Cary in Vancouver, which I wanted to get out of Vancouver and Cary was struggling at that time. And McMaster in Hamilton, which um, it was Hamilton and didn't appeal to me much. And then Acadia, Nova Scotia, which A, the Maritimes appealed to me. And B, they made a big deal at the time that all of their faculty had practical ministry experience, which was something that I valued and was attracted by. And I was young and single and had a camperized Volkswagen van and figured, why not go on, on a road trip? I was there 1986, 87, then went back to Vancouver for a couple of years. And then I was finished off at Acadia 89, 90, and then pastored at um, First Baptist Truro from 90 to 93. At Acadia, but also I think um, during my time at Truro as well, well, within the denomination, the role of women was certainly an issue that some of my male colleagues were quite outspokenly not in favor of women being in ministry in, or in leadership period in churches. <laughs> um, when I went for ordination at the Ordination Examining Council, each association sent a delegate to be part of that, and they were instructed that um, gender was not to be a reason to vote against anyone. And yet we all knew that at least four um, associations had instructed their delegates to vote against the women candidates. And sure enough, every woman candidate got four no votes, which was just a, uh, a thing at the time that drove some of us a little bit crazy. The other thing that was interesting was that uh, the principal at the time was a fellow named Andrew McRae. And he was really trying to get the Atlantic Baptist Convention more engaged in the cities because historically the Atlantic Baptist churches are very strong in rural and small town areas but weren't doing had never done particularly well in Halifax in particular and so he was trying to get an urban ministry program going in Halifax that being from Vancouver I was kind of um, recruited to be part of that movement it kind of never really took off the denomination as a whole just wasn't really on board with trying to develop a urban emphasis particularly because that wasn't where their strength was um, when we tr talked about planting a church in Halifax it was greeted greeted with a big yawn you know why would we want to possibly do that you know so so that was kind of interesting and frustrating at the same time I was doing my field work at First Baptist Dartmouth, which was a pretty exciting church at the time. David Watt was the minister there. We were trying to do some um, kind of some satellite 
churches in different regions around Dartmouth. And um, also, I think we were living over more in the near St. Mary's University in Halifax. And so we were also trying to get something, kind of some Bible studies with the idea of possibly being a church plant in that area, because there really wasn't a vibrant um, Baptist church in kind of the south end of Halifax. The couple of churches that were there were struggling or just kind of in their own little worlds, but not really trying to reach the university community, which is what we were particularly trying to engage with. So, yeah, it was basically trying to do some home Bible study groups um, with the idea of perhaps becoming some kind of a sort of almost a multi-campus thing that just never really went anywhere. And we did do uh, one of the faculty from Acadia, a guy named Gary Barnes, who was there only for a little while, did try to offer some courses in the evenings in Halifax and get some of the lay people from some of the Halifax churches to come to those. With This is long before, you know, distance ed was a thing at all. And so that was really progressive that Acadia would actually offer a course in the Halifax metropolitan area because that had never been tried before. In our day, everyone had to be on campus. They didn't have any remote learning options. So basically all of us had taken two to three years out of our life to be there. So most were in the MDiv program going to, and at the time anyway, intending to be full-time in pastoral ministry. Um, There was a Master's of Religious Ed program, which was a two-year program. That's what Marianne, my wife, did. At that time, churches were, some churches were hiring what they called Christian Ed directors who weren't, um, I can't remember whether they could be ordained or not with the two-year degree, but they were not perceived as pastors in the same way that people with an MDiv were or whatever. But they were doing more of the Christian education, particularly the children's youth type stuff. Um, So yeah, most of my colleagues were in the MDiv program. Most of them were intending to be in pastoral ministry. Many of them did go that route. A lot of them didn't last very long for a variety of reasons, which I think is common or was common anyway with those programs is that some people really just wanted some theological education and the only option was an MDiv, but they really weren't particularly excited about or called to be pastors. And so it just didn't stick with it Um, or others. It's just a tough job. And I think they just kind of got burned out and chewed up unfortunately, in the first few years. The difference now is is that um, a lot of people now doing M- Masters of Divinity are already involved in working in churches. In those days, most people weren't. And so the fact that we all had to live in Wolfville meant that there was very few churches around there that you could actually be working in anyway. So um, for one year, we had to be involved in ministry in a supervised way in a church. And so, so yeah, I worked as basically the young adults pastor at First Baptist Dartmouth for a year. First Baptist Dartmouth was, um, for its time, and so this was the late 80s, early 90s, was fairly, it certainly wasn't uh, wild and crazy by any means, but they did do, for instance, in terms of musically, they did do some of the more contemporary songs of the day rather than just hymns. Um, At that time, Shine Jesus Shine was the hot new song. And so they would sing songs like that quite regularly. 
which um, when I ended up after that going to First Baptist Truro for three years, they did hymns only. So it was uh, four hymns every Sunday and that was it, you know. And so um, when I was ordained, I wanted, because Shine Jesus Shine was kind of a cool song at the time, I wanted that as part of my ordination service. I had to, our organist, because we had an organist in Truro, refused to play it. And so I actually had to bring musicians from Dartmouth to lead in that song because uh, you know the organist at Truro wouldn't play the song. <laughs> when I graduated, I had the option of going to a solo pastorate or to an associate position. And I purposely wanted an associate position because I felt that I could either make all my own mistakes or learn from someone who had probably made a few before and could be a good mentor. And so um, we actually candidated for a solo pastorate on Prince Edward Island. At one of the churches, the chair of the search committee said to my wife, and here's the piano where you'll play on Sunday morning, dear. And uh, Marianne doesn't play piano. So that was just kind of, huh, I don't think this is going to work for us. <laughs> and at the other church, it was a two-point charge. The other church, this was February, all we could see were frozen potato fields. And they were talking about, there's so many people, there's so much potential, there's so much growth. And as a Vancouverite, I just saw frozen potato stubble and just thought, no, this isn't going to work. So um, when the opportunity came up in Truro, um, the pastor at that time was a fellow named Malcolm Harlow, who was in his late 50s and just a very wise, experienced person. And so to have the chance to work with him and be mentored by him and learn from some of his experience was great. Uh, you know, we did learn, it was, learn a lot. It was a very um, traditional church, as I mentioned at that time, every service was structured identically. Uh, Malcolm would always wear a robe when he preached. I never did, but uh, that was kind of his thing. Um, we had an organist and choir director, so there was choir and organ every Sunday. And yeah, but at the same time, um, it was a fairly healthy church, a mixed bag of people, kind of very different backgrounds, um, some definitely uh, more. Um, wealthier, more educated people, but also a real range of people to some people with uh, who had a lot of addiction issues. We were right in the center of the town. So, you know, sort of the Truro equivalent of some street people, which was kind of fun as well. So we had one person who routinely interrupted sermons because he knew better. And um, the deputy police chief was one of our members. And so he just kind of got into the habit of sitting behind this person and reminding him that he was there every week because that kind of kept him under in check. But yeah, it was kind of fun. <laughs> but as I mentioned, yeah, when we wanted to do some more creative music control, we, that really wasn't an option at that point. The other thing that drove me crazy about that church is that they had four boards. Each of them met every month. One had six members, the Christian Education Board. The rest all had 12 or 15 members. And so every year for our nominating committee, just for boards and committees, we had to find over 40 bodies, which was just ridiculous. We really didn't need 12 people on a finance board, but they had 12 people on the finance board. <laughs> so it was just, you know, the, the tradition that they had inherited, I guess. It was an interesting church in the Atlantic Baptist world because it um, there was a 
group, I'm not sure if it still exists or not, called the Atlantic Baptist Fellowship, which was a little more liberal, I guess, in its, some of its leanings of um, theological issues. It was kind of interesting because on the one hand, a number of them were the people who would wear clerical collars and gowns. Um, but at the end, then theologically, they were often more open to discussing issues around gender and that kind of thing. First Turo had a bit of an involvement with that, which kind of made it more open to some types of conversations in some other Atlantic Baptist churches. But at the same time, there were certain churches in the Atlantic Baptist world that you knew were very much Atlantic Baptist fellowship churches, that that was, they were kind of hook, line and sinker committed to those values. And First Turo kind of did a bit of a balancing act where it was sympathetic, but not totally on board with necessarily all of those issues. So it was interesting because we could have some of those conversations around gender issues and things, but at the same time, the end result wasn't predetermined one way or the other. There was some opportunity just to have good discussion, which was kind of fun. The First Baptist Halifax, for instance, was one of those churches that was a real flagship for the Atlantic Baptist Fellowship and some of their issues. I think they would have, some people would have, in the denomination, would have loved Turo, because it was kind of one of those more well-known, high-profile churches, to have been more um, active in that. But um, again, Malcolm Harlow, as the pastor, really wasn't pushing that agenda, and uh, just really the lay people weren't. I mean, again, they were open to some of those conversations, but it wasn't something that anyone was particularly pushing on. One of the other associate pastors who preceded me was much more engaged with that, much more proactive with it. But I didn't sense that the church as a whole was really going in those directions. My role was particularly um, youth. Christian education and mission and outreach. There was two of us pastoral staff. So Malcolm Harlow, who is the senior pastor, had the primary responsibility for preaching. So he did three out of four a week or a month, and I did one out of four a month. And he had primary responsibility for pastoral care. One of the things I learned from him was my pattern of ministry, which is I'm in the office in the morning kind of doing sermon prep and administration and then afternoons you're visiting you're phoning you're engaging with people that was what he did and he was very meticulous he had a basically an early version he didn't never did own a computer because it was before those days but he basically had a spreadsheet and he um, knew exactly when he visited everybody and what day that was and who was next on his list and um, who lived in what part of town so he could make it as efficient as possible and he would visit a person for 25 minutes, bang on the nose, and he had five minutes to get to the next place, and then he'd visit the next person. And he just was very meticulous about that. The other thing I just learned from him, I think, was a lot of grace and tact, especially when dealing with difficult people. Um, One of the things I did there was I wrote a weekly column on Saturdays for the the newspaper, the the Central Nova Scotia Daily News. And so it was on faith issues. One time I, I used a quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, imagine, uh, just imagine a really nice young man and a cantankerous old maiden. He said, who's a Christian? And he says, you have no idea because he says, maybe the nice young man isn't a Christian, but who knows how much nicer he would be if he were. And he says, maybe the cantankerous old maid is a Christian, but how much more cantankerous she'd be if she weren't. So I, I used this in the column and uh, I got a call on Saturday night from this cantankerous old maid in our congregation who was furious because I'd written this column about her. You know, I, I definitely didn't mention names, but she, you know, anyway, so I, Sunday morning before the service, I talked to Malcolm and said, Malcolm, what do I do? And he just smiled and said, you know, if the shoe fits, 
I think one of the advantages of having a mentor like that is he helped me think through some difficult theological issues. So going through the ordination process, we had to write our own statement of faith. And he was just very good at, in a constructive way, critiquing that and helping me anticipate some of the issues that might come out of that. And while I was there, we got involved with a soup kitchen. We got involved with a food bank. We um, did a few other sort of uh, lunch program, a few things like that, that uh, we've never really done before. But it was fun to see people get excited about actually making a difference in their, in their community. So one of the ladies that, uh, I mean, she should go on record. We had a dear lady named, um, I think she was B. Smith, who worked in the nursery which was in a dingy basement room for 55 years. She never actually went to a service because we our, our nursery was during a service, but she was actually proud of the fact that she was Anglican, but she had bounced Baptist babies on her knee for 55 years when I left and she was still going. She's just a phenomenal lady. So I don't know if she ever did get to an Anglican service, but uh, that was her ministry for 55 years, was bouncing Baptist babies on her knee. The other thing that happened at that church was we were trying to buy a house, which at that time was actually pretty cheap, but we had very little money. And one of the couples lent us, I think, $2,000 for the down payment, which is nothing really. But it just meant a lot to me that this couple would kind of take the risk or not that we were a big risk, but, you know, just be gracious enough to a, a young pastor to say, you know, we'll loan you the money and there's no no timeline to pay it back. Just when you sell the place, give us the money back. You know, just that kind of generosity and care was really special in the congregation. I think one of the things that was very strong in the Atlantic Baptists that's a strength and a weakness, and but it's something that has um, influenced me, is a real commitment to local church autonomy. No, I don't think in a negative way, but in the sense that different churches are different and um, we need, we can appreciate that and celebrate that and not all try to say that, you know, in Colchester Picto terms that, uh, you know, First Baptist Truro and Brookfield Baptist, which are just down the street, that we have to be the same. You know, we can be different and we can have some different approaches and emphases and ways of doing things and that's okay. And I felt that in the context that I was in Nova Scotia, there was uh, an appreciation of that and a celebration of that. And so I've continued to value that. Um, I think in Western Canada at the moment, there is a bit of a movement towards saying, no, we all have to be the same on certain things. And I kind of, um, maybe it's my Atlantic Baptist influence that I'm pushing back on that and saying, no, we don't have to be all the same. You know, if we're in different contexts, then we can do things differently. I think one of the things that I found interesting as as a Westerner being in Nova Scotia was that in Truro, there were, in Truro proper, there were three Atlantic Baptist churches. Two of them were white and one of them, Zion Baptist, was black. And there was no crossover um, in terms of membership. I found, as a Westerner, I found that kind of weird. But on the other hand, I'm getting to know the congregation and going to the services a couple of times at Zion Baptist, which was the African Association Church. It was just such a different experience, which was um, kind of fun. But as I understood it, the story at first anyway, was that back in the day before Zion Baptist was started, Black people 
could come to First Baptist, but they had to sit in the balcony. So that was part of the impetus for forming Zion Baptist, which is just kind of, again, as a Westerner growing up in a very multi-ethnic city like Vancouver, it was just kind of strange to me. But um, at the same time, the cultures were so different between you know, very formal First Baptist Church where the pastor's wearing a robe and we're only singing hymns to then going to a service at Zion Baptist, which was felt more like something you would potentially see in the southern states somewhere, you know, just much more expressive and emotional um, uh, worship. So, yeah, I, I struggled with how to make sense of that reality and how to be okay with that and, and still do to some extent. So when I moved to Edmonton, the church I went to was actually called Zion Baptist and everyone assumed it was a black church. And it's like, because that was their their frame of reference and it wasn't actually it was more um asian than and caucasian than anything else but you know they <laughs> that was just their they just assumed that well zion had to be an african association church so it's fun <laughs> thank you bruce for sharing your stories with us if you or someone you know are interested in participating in this ongoing oral history project please email akpass at acadiau.ca or visit our website at acadiadiv.ca slash akpass. You can find more information on the project and other interviews there. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>